Okay, welcome to day 165 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 22 through 23, verse 7, and then Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 31. Okay, picking up in 2 Samuel 22, uh, here we find a a psalm of David. And uh, we, of course, expect this in the Psalms, but here now we have it in a narrative book, uh, the book of Samuel. And you might remember that the way um, Samuel began was with the, the story about Hannah and the birth of Samuel. And you're given a little bit of narrative at the beginning, and then you're given a, uh, a poem, a long poem, the Song of Hannah. And now here at the end, uh, you're given at the very end a bit of narrative, but right before that, you get what you're looking at today, which is a poem. And so it's interesting to see how the book of Samuel is, is bookended by that narrative poem, poem, narrative. And this is um, here attributed to David. David spoke to Yahweh the words of this song on the day when Yahweh delivered him from the hands of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So this, of course, is um, clearly attributed to David and attributed in the sense uh, in which uh, he's responsible for its content. The only reason I'm not using the word wrote it is because there is, of course, a possibility that a scribe was used. And I'm only really bringing this up because I've said a bunch of times that the Uh, superscription to David or to so-and-so, to Solomon we saw the other day, uh, does not necessarily indicate authorship, but sometimes it really seems to. And this poem uh, is actually found elsewhere in the Bible. It's found in Psalm 18. Now, there are some minor changes, but essentially um, up through the end of chapter 22, uh, it is identical to Psalm 18 in, in most respects. There are some differences. The wording differs in, in a few little ways. But yeah, and in Psalm 18, it is a Psalm of David. So I suppose what I would say on that kind of ascription is that when we see in the Psalms that it is of someone, it doesn't necessarily mean written by, but it could mean written by. In other words, that ascription to um, an individual is in some ways associated with them, and one way in which that could be the case is in terms of authorship, of course, again, allowing for the possibility of scribes. Okay, so now when we look at this psalm, this poem, um, what, are we, what are we seeing here? Well, um, it involves a lot of praising God, and essentially... It's um, for the way in which God has acted in David's life. Um, David, as we've seen, uh, faces many, many challenges throughout his life, throughout his reign. And of course, I'm sure there's many that uh, are not recorded for us in the Bible. And, uh, and God uh, helps David through his covenant, uh, through his love for him, through his faithfulness to him. Uh, constantly de- delivering him from his enemies, uh, even when it's heartbreaking. Um, and this psalm is a celebration of that. And so we have a lot of the standard language that we see used to praise God in the psalms. Yahweh is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my my rock, right? I take refuge in him. He's my shield. He's the horn of my salvation. Stronghold, refuge, savior, um, all that stuff uh, loaded up there at the beginning. And um, it is God is acting here in response 
to David's call. I call upon Yahweh who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. Um, which I, is a good reminder to me because when uh, things are are difficult in my life and I really do need the Lord's help, sometimes it's just you, you forget to actually call out to him. You forget to actually um, pray to him and, and turn to him uh, in prayer, in in song, perhaps, uh, and and just speaking, right? Like, do do we call upon the Lord, or do we just kind of navigate these difficult trials with this vague notion that God is with us in in some way, but we're not really trying to com- interact with Him uh, during during that time. We're not actually consciously turning our hearts and minds to Him and saying, you know what, I'm going to take some time here and I'm going to call upon the Lord for help with this. Um, then uh, after that we get, uh, and again, I've, I've kind of gone through this, right, because we've done Psalm 18 already, so a lot of this is a bit of a review, um, but uh, the waves of death, torrents of destruction, cords of Sheol, snares of death, this is him describing how he feels because of uh, any one of his trials, or perhaps all of them together, right, like it feels uh, when when he is uh, when he is struggling, when he is facing challenges, it feels as if he's drowning in this uh, in this terrible sea. And I, I remember one time I I got to go on a cruise, and I remember looking off of that boat into the middle of the ocean, and just seeing this, thinking about how dreadful it would be to just fall off, right, and be at the mercy of this terribly deep water, and um, where. Uh, who knows what's lurking in it, right? And just getting pulled down by the waves, by whatever's living in there, and 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 that's definitely the picture there. Um, uh, but then again, in my distress, I called to Yahweh. So this conscious turning and calling to Him—that's what we do when we feel that way in life. To my God, I called, and from His temple, He heard my voice. Uh, there's this acknowledgement that God is dwelling in holiness, but also among his people. That's, um, you know, this this prime idea, like if there's anything to take away from this idea of temple in the Bible, it's that God um, is, there is a respect for his holiness, there's a respect for his separateness, the fact that we in our sin cannot approach him and all that stuff, but he's also among his people. So there's this tension there, right? It's God's presence, but make no mistake, this is a perfectly holy God who is dwelling in our presence. But from his temple, this, this holy one hears my cries. He hears my cries. And yes, it's true of David, and it's also true of us. Um, and now God is going to come. And, um, and here we have uh, this, what would be considered a storm theophany, that is the appearance of God described as this powerful storm. And this is very poetic imagery, and I think, as I mentioned in when we went through Psalm 18, this is a very good example, I think, of, um, of symbolism and imagery in the Bible, where if you asked, when did this happen, the answer is both never and when God saved David from his enemies. So, uh, like, you, there's never a point where you would have looked up into the clouds and seen Yahweh riding on them and and uh, you know uh, flashing forth coals from his nostrils and things like that. But in another sense, um, God is constantly doing this on behalf of his people. 
and the imagery is powerful. The earth reels and rocks, the foundations of the heavens tremble. So the very thing like that, that, is, that you would never think would move, those things that you would never think was mo- were moved, are moved um, it, it, before the presence of God. Um, smoke went up from his nostrils, devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals uh, flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Uh, thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. Remember how we've talked about the image of the in the Ark of the Covenant. This is represented there too, right? That the cherubim bear him up. We'll see this also in the vision of God in Ezekiel, that God is enthroned above the cherubim, these mighty, uh, uh, these mighty spiritual beings uh, uh, bear him up. Uh, he was seen on the wings of the wind. He made, he made darkness around him his canopy, thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. Yahweh thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. He sent out arrows and scattered them, um, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, the foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of Yahweh, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. And this is this is kind of amazing, right? Like that this is the, the language that we have in the Bible to describe the way in which God loves us, the way in which God acts in our favor to help us. Um, we, we serve a very pa- a powerful God, um, and we shouldn't forget that, even when he's helping us in, small, in, in what we perceive to be small ways. Um, and then you have the actual deliverance of David, and notice he's in the waters still. Verse 17, he sent from on high and took me, he drew me out of many waters. Um, and then the metaphor is then turned into reality. Like, what are you talking about by waters? Were you literally drowning, David? No. He rescued me from my strong enemy for those who hated me. That's what I meant by being um, submerged in water there. Um, then in uh, verses 21 through 25, you kind of have like the centerpiece of the psalm. Um, I don't know how well I explained it the other day, but we saw, um, I, I introduced you to what is uh, considered a chiasm, that is an ABBA pattern. Uh, it, it begins with one, th- one an element in the Bible will, will, will kick off a section, and then another element, and another element, and another element, and then it'll go in reverse. And, and this psalm very much is like that. And here is the center. And the thing about chiasms is usually the focus is on the center. It's pointing you to the center, almost like an arrow. And here, the centerpiece of this psalm, of this poem, is uh, is God's repaying David according to his righteousness. And we've talked a lot about this in here. Of course, we want to qualify this with Job, right? Like, David's had his own Job moments, when uh, I think particularly the rebellion of Absalom. And, um, and, but God does ultimately deliver him. And so, so however much of Job you want to bring in, right, that sometimes the righteous do suffer, sometimes uh, the wicked do prosper, when you take a step back and realize how things really are, you realize that that is not the last word. Uh, just like we saw in Psalm 73 the other day, um, where where he has that wake-up moment, right? Like like a dream when one awakes, um, 
you know, I I, I suddenly uh, I I suddenly went into the sanctuary of God and discerned their end and was like, oh yes, <laughs> there's there's more to this whole scenario than what I'm seeing right now. Um, and so Yahweh dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He rewarded me. And uh, notice uh, even this, um, in, the, in the last section, you have it bookended by that concept, uh, the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my, the cleanness in, in his sight. Um, so you have, um, you have a lot of that. Uh, that. David has acted righteously, and so God has responded. Um, and this is grounded, of course, in God's character. Uh, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless, right? And so if you are good to your neighbor, the Lord uh, will be good to you. If you are good to those who, who need it, who need you, then God treats you similarly. Um, again, of course, qualified with, the, fact, with the, the notion of grace that we are all sinners, but I don't think there's anything inconsistent with saying that, that God does respond to our righteousness and saying that God is a God of grace who uh, treats none of us as we deserve, but but shows mercy to us. It is right and biblical to to say both things, um, and and I I think this is uh, um, verse twenty seven always sticks out to me. With the purified you deal purely, but with the crooked you make yourself seem torturous. Um, to the to the person who is running from God, right? The, the the notion of God, the notion that God is even there, can be a torturous thought. Um, I don't know about you, but there are times when I am walking in sin, and I just and and the the notion that that God is there and all this stuff is still true, it just seems like a miserable thought. And and that's how it is when we when we turn from God. Um, uh, your your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. Um, and then you have this light imagery, right? For you are my lamp, O Yahweh, and my God, and my God lightens my darkness. Um, and the ways in which he strengthened, the Lord strengthens David. By you, I can run against a troop. I can leap over a wall. These, of course, are military imagery. Um, this God, his way is perfect. The word of Yahweh proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Then we have another one of these uh, strong statements of monotheism, which I think is always very helpful when we're thinking about how God and spiritual beings are presented in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible. For who is God but Yahweh? Who is a rock except our God? And then uh, we get this refuge language again, um, uh, ways in which he strengthened David. He makes my feet like the feet of the deer, um, set me on secure heights, trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. Keep in mind that many of the things that David was called to do in his life did involve actually having to go to war. Um, and I love verse 36, your gentleness made me great. Here's a man who's being trained for a war to bend bars of bronze and He's, and he's helped by God's gentleness with him, uh, because God cares for us as he cares for, for as, as, as one would care for little children. Um, as opposed to uh, yesterday in Psalm, or sorry, two days ago in Psalm 20, uh, 73, where the people's, uh, the wicked's feet are set on slippery places, right? Like whatever stability they have now is not going to remain here. My feet did not slip. 
um, and um, uh, and and it's all because God equipped him. You equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to Yahweh, right? Like they're not. These are not people. Here he's talking about other Israelites. So perhaps you could think of like a number of the rebellions and mutinies that David faced during his days, whether it be pursuit um, by Saul. Um, and here, you know, of course, this is this is uh, very fitting for for that event. It, it specifically talks about that in the superscript. Uh, you can also think of things like the um, the various um, uh, rebellions that rose up against him within Israel itself, but they call to Yahweh, but they don't they don't have the cleanness of hands that David has, right? And so Yahweh did not answer them. Um, and um, so when David had to go up against them, um, I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. Uh, verses 44 through 46 focus on kind of international affairs, the, um, the uh, other nations who rose up against David, whom he had to go against. Um, so you delivered me from strife with my people, but then you kept me as the head of the nations, people whom I had not known served me. We saw this with various Ammonite kingdoms, right? Talked about uh, various Aramean city-states also, um, also um uh, tri- um, vassals to David, I suppose we could say. Foreigners came cringing cr- cr- to me, cringing to me. <laughs> as soon as they heard it, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost their heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. Then again, we have a, a word of praise with a lot of this uh, language, this psalm this psalmish language towards God. He is the rock. He is to be exalted. He is the rock of my salvation. Um, and then uh, finally, we have uh, a final praise in verses 50 and 51, which is um, grounded in the covenant that God has made with David. For this I will praise you, O Yahweh, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed to David and his offspring forever. Notice the, that Davidic covenant language there. You've got the anointed, the Mashiach, Messiah, um, and to offspring forever. Okay, uh, Now that is the point at which Psalm 18 ends, but then you have um, another, brief, uh, another brief poem, uh, which is called The Last Words of David. Um, and so, uh, the oracle of David, son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high. There, That is another theme that we saw very prominent in the Song of Hannah. And of course, the whole story of David's life is like this, where God takes um, someone who is nothing and raises them up. Um, so he was raised by God um, and has become the anointed of the God of Jacob, the Mashiach, um, the sweet psalmist of Israel, right? Of course, we've seen how many psalms are attributed to him, uh, as and as well as um, you know his his talent with music when he had to go in with Saul and 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 play before him. And here um, you have a lot of focus on David as uh, one through whom God speaks. Okay, that that when we see the words of David, we are to see God speaking through him. This is very much the biblical doctrine of inspiration here. 
uh, of script of the scriptures. So the spirit of Yahweh speaks by me. His word is on his word is on my tongue. Um, the New Testament often takes up this kind of language um, where um, it'll quote something in the Psalms written by David. And we'll talk about how God is speaking through him, um, often by by speaking of the Spirit speaking through him. So, like Matthew twenty two forty three, Jesus says, "David in the Spirit calls him Lord." Of course, speaking of the future Messiah, um, Mark twelve thirty six, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared. Acts 116, uh, the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. Acts 425, uh, uh, addressed to God that you, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so uh, a lot of this idea of uh, of this comes from the, the Psalms itself, this idea of uh, God speaking through the scriptures, through these Psalms, through these songs. Um, uh, so the, the God of Israel has spoken, it says, the rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, notice here, justice is connected with the fear of God. You cannot separate the two. Um, he, he don't, and uh, uh, remember the prayer for Solomon that David had written, uh, Psalm 72, where a lot of that was that the, the king, the important thing for the Mashiach to do, the anointed to do, is to is to pursue justice. Um, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Um, there, uh, that that he is it talking about God or is it talking about the the, the king who rules justly? Um, not entirely clear. Um, however, uh, it. Uh, if I had was if I had to choose, I'd probably say that's referring to God there, just because of um, uh, God is the closest noun to that word He. Okay, um, but um, and then this closes with the three final verses. For does for does not my house stand so with God? For He has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. So again, a celebration of His covenant with with David. Um, and then a denunciation, finally, of the worthless men. And we've seen a lot of these worthless fellows who rise up against the Messiah, um, against the, the, the king who reigns over God's people. But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed." Uh, there, there we might think of someone like like all the men of Israel right, that we we've been seeing here, um, who follow, for example, Sheva, the one who is killed um, in uh, by Joab, um, well, actually beheaded by the people in the city of Abel Beit Maaka, that like all these people who gather around the worthless fellow who rejects the Lord and the Lord's anointed, or I perhaps we should say it rejects the Lord by rejecting his anointed. Um, all of those who rally themselves around them uh, feel the uh, what comes of that, and it's like they're grasping thorns when they grasp onto them. Okay, that's it for Second Samuel today. Let's go over and take a look at Acts chapter nine, verses one through thirty-one. Yesterday we first met Saul of Tarsus. 
He is the one who pretty much oversaw the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, the first one to die for his testimony of Jesus. Um, By no means will he be the last. Um, And here uh, we see Saul kind of amping this up. It says that he's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So he goes to the high priest in Jerusalem, and you kind of think of the interactions of the high priests, right? Like they've been trying to find men just like Saul, people who will strongly oppose this Jesus movement, and he sees in them a kindred spirit, even though Saul uh, Saul is himself a Pharisee, as we know from elsewhere in Scripture. And um, again, the collaboration with the Sadducees is not a regular thing for them, but it seems that on the Jesus matter, they're they're willing to make an exception for this. Um, and he asks them for letters to bring to Damascus. So there's knowledge he has of a Christian church starting up in Damascus. And it says, so that if he found any belonging to the way, he uh, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This is the first time um, we see Christianity referred to by its first known um, designation, which is the way. And we'll see it referred to as that throughout the book of Acts, although um, it is also during that time period covered in Acts when uh, the term Christian uh, comes into use. But that has not yet happened. That will happen later in the city of Antioch. So he's on his way and he's approaching the Damascus. Damascus, of course, being to the north of, of Israel or of Judea and Samaria and Galilee, as they were known in, 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 that, in those days. And it says, a light from heaven shone around him, and he falls to the ground, and a, and a voice speaks to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so, and, and he, Saul responds, who are you, Lord? And it's, it's, those words are interesting, right? Because it can simply mean, Lord can simply mean like, sir, Right, like he realizes that whomever he's speaking to is some uh, clearly someone who's higher up the food chain than he is, so to speak. But it's much more likely, given Saul's background, that he understands that this is some kind of divine figure. Perhaps um, understanding this to be the angel of the Lord or something like that, and realizes that in the Old Testament, when people address the angel of the Lord, that it is God speaking through this messenger. Um, so he is apparently aware of the divine nature of what's happening. And you can imagine how shocking this must have been, right? So sure, so determined that he was right, um, raised this way and, and having become essentially an expert in the law at the, as we will learn later on at the feet of a, of an extremely well-respected rabbi, uh, the guy Gamaliel, actually, who spoke out earlier in, in uh, sort of in the defense of the apostles. But clearly the impression would be that if anyone understood the will of the Lord and if anyone understood his law and the scriptures, it was Saul. And yet here he receives this lightning bolt revelation Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And followed by, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Also notice here how um, Jesus' wording implies that to persecute the church is to persecute him, 
right? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my followers? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my church? He says, why are you persecuting me? Um, this close association of Jesus with the church, that what is done to the church is done to him. And we need to remember that in our thinking about the church, whether it's we're tempted to uh, cause strife, whether we're tempted to be overly critical or to simply have bad blood between us and other believers for some reason, um, that this is the church of the living God, the body of Christ. And as broken as it is, this side of eternity, um, our job is to build it up and not to tear it down. Um, so, of course, Paul here is much more aggressive on the tear down side than a lot of people are. It's very blatant, but there are other ways of that happening as well. He's then commanded, commanded rise and enter the city. You will be told what to do. And uh, the men who are with him uh, are speechless. They, they can hear a voice, um, but they don't see anyone. So there's confusion there. And now Saul, his eyes are opened. He gets up, right? But he can't see anything. And you can just think of how vulnerable he is now, right? He's come to arrest these Christians, and now he, he here he is having to be led by the hand, brought into Damascus. And, and notice that Jesus doesn't say, um, uh, at, at least at this point, what, what, what the future holds for him. As far as he knows, this is strictly an act of divine judgment, um, and uh, as, as he travels uh, to, to Damascus, completely blind, completely dependent on others, um, and uh, in this uh, gesture of mourning, which we've seen a bunch of times in the Old Testament so far, um, he's sitting there blind, and he's, he doesn't eat, and he doesn't drink. And at the end of those three days, a, a disciple named Ananias comes to him. Um, he's met in a vision by the Lord, told specifically where to go, what street, what house, and the name of the man whom he is to look for, a man from Tarsus named Saul. And Ananias is aware of Saul, right? And he is basically like, say what? <laughs> I, I've heard about this man, how much evil he has done, which kind of sounds like more than Luke has even reported here. Um uh, and uh, evil to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. And so um, God, however, uh, tells him, uh, nevertheless, you are to go because I have more in store through this man than you can possibly imagine. He's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Notice there the connection with the, the mission in Acts from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Um, so it is through him that God will uh, very much accomplish this. Of course, it, there will be others as well, um, but Saul is the, um, is the one who's focused on here. And, and not only that, but I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So instead of him making the, uh, my saints suffer, he himself will suffer, and he will do it not for sin, not because of the sin that he's done. He is now forgiven in Christ, or is shortly to be. No, he, he will do it for the sake of the name of Jesus. He will suffer for the sake of the name of Jesus. And as we'll see 
um, both in things that Paul says in the book of Acts and in his letters, suffering is a big part of what it means to be an apostle, and Paul saw that as intrinsic to his ministry as an apostle. I am the messenger of the Son of God who was crucified, and my life bears witness to the message that I proclaim. So Ananias goes to the house he lays his hands on him. Remember this often denoting this solidarity in the church, that this is not just Paul kind of being, um, or, or Saul, he's still Saul now, spoiler alert, this is not Saul just being this rogue guy who's disconnected from the rest of the church. No, it is it is through his connection with the church that he receives his, his mission, um, and he calls him Brother Saul. So at this point, he's already understanding that Saul is identified as a, to be identified as a Christian, and uh, he tells him what's going on. He says he's going to regain his sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit, um, and um, immediately it says something like scales fell from his eyes, right? Luke is not exactly sure how to explain exactly what it is, uh, and he can see again. And he rises, is baptized, takes food, and is strengthened. And he remains in Damascus, and he begins in the synagogues. That's what he knows. He's, uh, after all, a Pharisee, um, very much at home there, proclaiming Jesus is the Son of God. And remember, Son of God, uh, in this context, is very much a royal title. It is a title that is given to the Christ, um, although there are places in the New Testament where Jesus' sonship clearly means more than that. Um and people are very confused. It calls. It says they're amazed. Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of all those who call upon this name? And um, isn't he in this city to bring people um, bound before the chief priests? Um, but he continues in his ministry. It says increasing in strength and uh, confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And um, after many days, um, there is a plot to kill him, and he is let down through an open, opening in the wall in uh, what Luke calls a basket. He then go, comes down to Jerusalem and tries to join up with the disciples there, but they're afraid of him. They're skeptical. Um, apparently, word has not reached them of what's been going on in Damascus with Saul. They don't believe he's a disciple. But then we see Barnabas once again, and remember we were introduced to him back in chapter 4 as the one who had sold a large uh, plot of land and given the proceeds uh, to the church, uh, which gave the idea to several, including Ananias and Sapphira, whom that didn't end well for. Um, but Barnabas does believe that Saul is truly converted, and he brings him to the apostles. And um, we're not even told here exactly how the apostles responded to Paul initially, uh, or sorry, Saul, <laughs> um, and um, even even though he's Barnabas is vouching for him, telling him about Damascus, um, they um, I don't think there's a reason to say they reacted negatively or anything like that, or or even cautiously. We're just not told what their exact response is, but um, he does, uh, I guess, build up credibility over time. Um, going in and out among them, it says, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And um, he has particular ministry with the Hellenists, that is the Jewish, um, Greek-speaking Jewish people, 
and uh, who respond to this with, once again, another plot to kill him. Uh, here is this this man who is very important to what we were thinking to do, and now he's proclaiming Jesus, and so everybody is, has it out for him. And uh, once it, it becomes evident that it's dangerous for him to remain in Jerusalem, they bring him to Caesarea and send him back to his hometown of Tarsus, where he will actually remain for quite a few years. And, um, and then at the end of today's reading in verse 31, we have a summary account. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Sam- Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. Once again, the church multiplies. Okay, that wraps it up for today. Um, As always, thank you for being with me. Uh, And until we are back here, same time, same place tomorrow, keep reading scripture, take care, and bye-bye.